Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 101. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 44 through 47 and follow with a consideration of a fable of folly. Deutero Yeshayahu begins chapter 44 on a positive note, a note of comfort. Quote, Even as I pour water on thirsty soil and rain upon dry ground, so will I pour on your offspring, my blessing on your posterity. And they shall sprout like grass, like willows by watercourses. Well, if that's the wind-up, here's the pitch. Quote, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God but me. Who, like me, can announce, can foretell it, and match me thereby? And Deuteroyashayahu is going this route because, as I'm sure you know, he's going to knock, wait for it, idols. That's right. Complete and total loser. Here, the critique is even more trenchant, mocking the makers of these idols by going behind the scenes into the production of these sacred icons. Deuteroyashayahu describes their work in the most prosaic, most banal terms, the techniques they use to produce these, quote, gods, and how the smith who stokes the charcoal and hammers the panels into place fashions the icon, or the craftsman who planes and sands the wood to make that idol. How do they not see that there is nothing divine in the raw materials, that the wood they burn to heat their homes and bake their bread is the same stuff of which their idols are made? Complete and total loser. I mean, really, it's, it's just silly. Quote, a deluded mind has led him astray, and he cannot save himself. He never says to himself, the thing in my hand is a fraud. Deutero Yeshayahu concludes the chapter by reminding the Jews that God will redeem them and proclaim his glory, and direct Cyrus, the Achaemenid king of Persia, to aid the Jews in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Did I just say Cyrus? Why, yes I did! In fact, every chapter in this week's episode is informed by Cyrus, as his victory over Babylon is arguably the central historical event in Deuteroyashayahu's lifetime. Not only did Cyrus defeat and destroy the destroyers of God's temple in Jerusalem, the Achaemenid king announced that all deported peoples could return to their homeland, and in the case of the Jews, he would subsidize the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Is this not proof positive that God delivers? I mean, come on, people. And sure, Cyrus is an idolater too, but he gives the proper respect to God when he announces that he does what he does in God's name, or at least that's how the Cyrus proclamation is worded in the Tanakh. And his Persian or Iranian brand of idolatry, Zoroastrianism, is philosophically different than, you know, run-of-the-mill paganism. They too believe in one God, Ahura Mazda, or the Wise Lord. Ahura Mazda created everything, and his creation stands in opposition to chaos, and the resulting conflict between truth and order on one side and falsehood and disorder on the other is cosmic and includes all of humanity. Before creation itself, there were six singularities. Forged into infinity stones. In any event, chapter 45 describes how Cyrus will be galvanized into the cause, fight against God's enemies, prevail, build a massive empire, set in place a new world order, and also free the Jews, and rebuild Jerusalem. What a good deal! In chapter 46, Deuteroyashayahu returns to idols. Again, quote, Bel is bowed, 
Nabu is cowering. Bel, which means master or lord in Akkadian, was the Babylonian sky god, the father of all gods. His primary temple was in Nippur, and later on he was identified with Marduk, god of the city of Babylon, who was also referred to as Bel Marduk. Nabu was the god of Borsippa or Birs Nimrud, site of one of the only surviving ziggurats in present-day Iraq. He was worshipped as a son of Marduk, and his name was incorporated into the names of many Neo-Babylonian monarchs, like Nabu Apla Usur, or Nabopalisar, Nabu Kuduri Usur, or Nebuchadnezzar, or Nabu Naid, or Nabonidus. Their believers try to organize a procession with these idols, and all it does is exhaust the donkeys who pull the floats in the Idol Day Parade, and it's a total waste of time. <laughs> In the end, God will prevail over them. Chapter 47 recounts precisely how God will prevail over Babylon, and it's part of a long-standing tradition of the prophets to prophesy about foreign nations. Amos, Yeshayahu, Tzephaniah, Yirmiyahu, Yechezkel, Ovadia, and Nahum all prophesy about foreign nations. Nahum and Ovadia only focus on one. Here, Deutero Yeshayahu has some feels about Babylon. And even though Babylon did what they did because the Jews were wicked and... Ooh, you better believe that's a bad one. It doesn't matter. In episode 92, I discussed how there, in chapter 10, Yeshayahu railed against Babylon, even though they were the stick that God used to smite the Jews. And like in chapter 10, and like with Assyria, the stick thought it was smiting on its own and looked upon its smiting as an expression of its own power and success. And for that... Ooh, you better believe that's a bad one. Deutero Yeshayahu describes Babylon as a fair maiden who will sit in the dust, dethroned, stripped of all fineries, shamed and exposed. But this fate will be well deserved. Quote, I was angry at my people. I defined my heritage. I put them in your hands, but you showed them no mercy. Even upon the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You thought, I shall always be the mistress still. You did not take these things to heart. You gave no thought to the end of it. So no amount of pleading or payoffs or spells will avert this fate. All the magicians, the scanners of heavens, the stargazers, quote, Fire consumes them. They cannot save themselves from the power of the flame. This is no coal for warming oneself, no fire to sit by. In other words, Babylon is finished. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. Once again, there's some really evocative, colorful, and poetic imagery in this episode, especially when it comes to Deutero Yoshayahu's takedown of idolatry. One can almost imagine the woodcarver walking through the patch of trees, looking for that right tree that would become the figure of Baal with a raised arm, and how, after sizing it up properly, he'd take his axe and cut it down. And then he'd drag the wood back to his shop, and begin the process of carving, stripping away all the unnecessary wood and eventually producing the idol. But then after cleaning up, he would just toss all those extra pieces of wood into the fire to heat his space, to stoke the oven that he would use to bake his bread. And they say that with the rise of hipsters, irony is dead. But this dynamic, the wood for the idol becoming the wood for the oven to bake bread, reminds me of a statement by Ephraim of Kshaa, a disciple of Rabbi Meir, in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin 39b, quote, Ovadia was an Edomite proselyte, and thus people say, from the forest itself comes the handle of the axe. What Ephraim is referring to 
is the prophecies of Ovadia, whom I mentioned at the top of the episode, focusing specifically on the impending ruin of a Gentile nation. In this case, the nation is Edom. And what Ephraim of Kshaah is saying, that Ovadia predicts the downfall of Edom, which is ironic, as according to rabbinic tradition, Ovadia himself is an Edomite who converted to Judaism. Get it? He's a former Edomite who prophecies against Edom. The forest produces wood. The axe handle is made of wood. The forest itself produces its undoer. This theme is taken up in a story attributed to Aesop, the 6th century BCE Greek fabulist, which I guess makes him a contemporary of Deuteroyashayahu. It goes like this. A woodsman came into a forest to ask the trees to give him a handle for his axe. The request struck the trees as a modest one, so after a little discussion, the trees agreed. The oaks suggested that a plain young ash tree should furnish what was wanted. All the trees agreed. No sooner had the woodsman fitted the wood to the axe head than he got to work, felling all the noblest trees in the wood. The oak, now seeing the whole matter too late, whispered to the cedar, The first concession has lost all. If we had not sacrificed our humble neighbor, we might yet have stood for ages ourselves. Variations of this tale has the oak whispered to the cedar, The first step has lost us all. If we had not given up the rights of the ash, we might yet have retained our own privileges and have stood for ages. And the moral of the story has often been expressed as, quote, Nothing goes nearer a man in his misfortunes than to find himself undone by his own folly, or but any way accessory to his own ruin. Or, give me an inch, and I'll take an L. An L equals six hand breaths, or it's about 45 inches. Those morals are pretty self-explanatory, although divergent. The first chides the trees as being foolish for aiding in their own undoing, and the second chides the woodsman for being what my mother would call a chazer, or a ravenous pig. However, there is also a Macedonian or perhaps a Turkish proverb that says, quote, When the axe came into the forest, the trees said, The handle is one of us. This proverb, too, has a different meaning, a sharper edge than Aesop's fable. Where the trees are foolish for participating in their own undoing, the Macedonian Turkish proverb provides two other possible readings. One is that the handle has somehow betrayed the trees. He's one of us, and here he comes to undo us. Or the other, where the trees see the handle and, clutching desperately to hope, tell themselves, Ah, he's one of us. He won't do us any harm. Alas, alas. But is this what Ephraim of Kshah intends when he says from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe? I'd like to offer yet another reading of this tale, and it's admittedly a less tree-huggy reading, but it's worth considering nonetheless. So settle down, snowflakes. Here it is. Stipulated that humans need to consume, but also conserve nature in order to survive. The woodsman was doing what our ancestors did before we became industrialized, monstrous causers of nature. That is, the woodsman was taking what he needed and left the rest for others or for later or for no use at all. And how does he do that? How does he acquire the wood to build a sled or a wagon or a house or a school? Or to carve a statue or to reduce to firewood so he can heat his home or stoke his oven and bake his bread? This is a big problem and a challenge for the woodsman, as trees don't really lend themselves to these uses all by themselves. Can he use his hands? Can he use his teeth? Alas, no. He has to use a tool. And the most effective tool for these purposes is an axe. And the best handle for the axe is made of wood. And wouldn't you know, wood comes from the forest! So in other words, sometimes the problem that confronts you might have within it 
its own solution. Isn't that fortuitous? If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or, if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 102, when we continue in the Book of Isaiah with chapters 48 through 51.